everyone, this is Marcel. And this is Isabel, and you are now listening to the Top Rank Podcast. For any new listeners, our podcast is an exploratory research platform centered on people of diverse backgrounds who are driving and shaping the world around them. Celebrity culture thrives on granting us vicarious access to our favorite stars, but rarely on display are the paparazzi and the reporters whose hidden labor makes the story happen. In her book, Manufacturing Celebrity, Latino Paparazzi and Women Reporters in Hollywood, anthropologist Dr. Vanessa Diaz brings us inside the world of celebrity media production and reveals the complex racial and gendered power relations at play in the production of fame. So today we are so excited to be joined by Professor Diaz, who is an interdisciplinary ethnographer, filmmaker, journalist, and assistant professor of Chicano, Chicana, and Latino, Latina studies at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. So with all that being said, thank you so much for being here with us today, Vanessa. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to, to chat with you about my book and my research. Amazing. Uh, your, your story, your trajectory is so interesting um, that I feel like it could be cool to start out Uh, our conversation by asking you to tell a bit of the origin story behind this project. You were formerly a celebrity reporter and now you're a culture anthropologist. So could you give us a sense of what your trajectory from those two fields um, has been? Absolutely. You know, I think it's kind of funny. I think most of us who are scholars or writers or or any actually kind of creative work, the evolution sometimes only makes sense to us. But for me, you know, even if a lot of people in both fields are like, how did this happen? To me, it's so natural. You know, I have a background in journalism, as you mentioned, but even before I was working as a celebrity reporter, I did uh, news photography um, and I worked in radio and I worked in print journalism, newspaper work. So I I had this background in sort of interacting with people, studying people. There are so many overlaps between journalism and ethnographic practice. So I think it sort of came naturally to me and different mentors of mine as an undergrad were looking at the kind of work um, I started doing earlier on and kind of suggested, you know, this this does actually seem a lot like ethnography, um, this sort of like in-depth cultural study. So my interest in the particular topic of, of celebrity journalism sort of as, as a really serious place to, to study took shape when I started my internship at the New York Bureau of People magazine in 2004. And that was actually when I was an undergrad at NYU. And Actually, Mary-Kate and Ashley Olson had enrolled at NYU, and I was essentially tasked with kind of keeping tabs on them in and around NYU, the village, studying them, essentially. They were my objects of study. Um, Of course, uh, People Magazine was interested in sort of their social life. And if you think about the way that 
celebrity magazines and celebrity media focus on these individual personalities. They're focusing on specific people, but they're also focusing on the sort of communities. There are sort of celebrity communities. It actually has a lot to do with the way that we study cultural practices in anthropology. And when I was working as a paid intern for People Magazine, I immediately started to take note of gender and racial inequalities I saw on the red carpet and in the offices of the magazine. Uh, and, And then it was actually when I moved back to Los Angeles and continued doing celebrity reporting Uh, here in LA that I noticed even more complex dynamics and started to notice the shifts, for example, in the demographics of the paparazzi to mostly Latino men, which I know we'll talk about more. And once I was in an anthropology PhD program, I ultimately decided to pursue research on this in hopes of writing the book that we're discussing today. I think if we think about anthropology as the study of every day, that there really are few things more every day in the US than our exposure to media and the celebrities or other kinds of personalities in them. And for me, as someone who worked in celebrity media, I realized that most people didn't get to see what I saw. Most people didn't have access to the spaces that I did. Most people couldn't see all of these different perspectives. And, you know, from from beginning uh, at People Magazine and seeing these different gender and race politics in and around you know, the red carpet and, and the offices that, that I focus on in the book. I mean, my very first event that I covered was the VH1 Hip Hop Honors Awards in New York. And one of the uh, rappers who I was interviewing said, oh, you work for People Magazine. I call that White People Magazine. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, at the time I was People Magazine's diversity. Like they were like, oh, you're our person to go do everything hip hop, to go do anything not white. And it's like, that I wasn't enough. I mean, that sorry, that I was supposed to be all they needed in terms of like other just showed that not only was there a problem with representation in the magazine, there's obviously a prob- problem with representation uh, in the pages of the magazine, behind the scenes. And the, the celebrities of color want to talk about this stuff. They actually want to engage in a critical way. Um, and so it really helped me understand the potential contribution that I could make and the fact that anthropologists often, I think, want to study things that require access. You can't just get on a whim. And I had this access and I thought this is really important and issues of uh, hierarchies and race and gender conflict in Hollywood are not just Oscar so white, but all of these other kinds of inequalities and issues around race and gender and class that pervade the whole Hollywood system. Um, and I think it can be really easy to ignore because we don't see the back workings of this in the magazines or on screen. And really everything that Hollywood presents is a fabrication. It's, it's a show. And so what's the real deal of this celebrity making? That's what I'm interested in. Yeah, I think it's really um, crucial, as you said, that like you already had this this insider access and felt the need to like to take responsibility in a way for for observing these things and sharing them in a in a way that one's average anthropologist, I guess, not that there is an average, but that not everybody could do this work. But I think that Marcel and I both um, were really surprised actually to learn a lot of the foundational points of this book perhaps most importantly, that the majority of paparazzi working in LA are Latinx men. Um, what is the history 
that led to paparazzi becoming what you call a form of racialized quote service labor? And why is it that their labor is mar- is marginalized in this way despite being like the cornerstone and, esen- and, and an essential function for the industry itself? Absolutely, yeah, thanks, thanks for the question. It, it's, it is complicated um, and interesting and then not unlike a lot of other realms where we see Latinx labor actually. So, so more um, Latino men joined the workforce between 2002 and 2005. Um, and then by 2008, there was this shift that was really noticeable um, by paparazzi themselves, the industry, uh, media commented, basically, you know, it was all white guys and now it's mostly Latinos, what's the deal? So the demographic shift in LA um, of this workforce was alluded to in a lot of different popular media articles kind of commenting and critiquing paparazzi, but it wasn't really investigated. There weren't really questions answered about why did this happen? And what happened is that this shift coincided with the expansion of the celebrity weekly magazine industry and this increased demand for paparazzi photos. So People Magazine started in 1974. And when they started, they had no direct competition in the United States until 2000. And that's when Us Magazine, which had existed since 1977, but as a more trade focus, bi-monthly and then monthly publication, actually relaunched as a weekly in 2000. That's when People Magazine had their first competition. And then beginning in 2002, just two years later, a wave of new magazines started entering the market. So between 2002 and 2005, we see the launch of InStyle, Life and Style, I'm sorry, um, In Touch, Life and Style. Uh, those two magazines began publication. The tabloid newspaper Star was relaunched as a weekly magazine. And then the British magazine OK uh, created a US version. So while the branding and reputations of these magazines does vary somewhat, they all share the common focus on celebrity content and a glossy sort of image heavy aesthetic. And just to clarify, and this is really important because I think historians of celebrity in Hollywood really want to take me to task to this, and I'm fine with that. But but those people tend to be folks who aren't necessarily looking critically at race in any of this. But paparazzi work has always been demonized. So I get that question a lot. Well, why does it matter that they're Latino, right? If, if paparazzi work was always demonized, you know, the term paparazzi, paparazzo evolved from the 1960 Federico Fellini film La Dolce Vita. And in that film, the annoying celebrity photographer was called paparazzo. And so the, the multiple, right, the if that is paparazzi. And so why does it matter that they're Latino if this was a profession that was already hated? And what I would say is that the way that paparazzi work has come to be racialized and for paparazzi to be criminalized in particular ways with specific legislation now targeting their work in California, with racialized language used to describe them um, by celebrities, by the industry, uh, by more popular media. I mean, I talk about in my book, people like Jennifer Garner calling them gangs of large aggressive men, Um, people referring to them as thugs. I have very problematic quotes that really underscore this very specific kind of racialization that differs from sort of early annoyance with or frustration with paparazzi that sure has always existed, but the way that that has turned to a specific kind of racialized hatred of both them and their work is something that has existed since this demographic turn. Um, There's expression of actual fear around them that is different. And, And again, this grew with the shift and the demographics Um, which was in the first decade of of the 2000s. 
Now, in terms of thinking about this contradiction, right, between this disdain for them, for the paparazzi, but also this need because they they cr- are critical to the creation of celebrity you know that's part of the central focus of the book is understanding how these politics of visibility and invisibility affect these media producers who are, are critical to the maintenance of the celebrity system and you know this is a, really a longer conversation but a lot of this hatred is performative too it's strategic the presence of paparazzi following a celebrity shows that they are famous it shows that they're important it's strategic to perform irritation with that or hatred of that or fear of that because it makes them more likable more real more famous like oh i don't really want to be followed i don't really want to be photographed It's like that performance of, you know, that I'm, it's like the stars, they're just like us, like, oh, we don't really want that. But at the same time, that's what actually amplifies them. If you say, oh, I want to be photographed, I want, then it seems less legitimate, right? If you're really famous, if you're really a celebrity, you don't have to ask for that. You don't have to want that. It just happens. And then there is this strategic performance of annoyance with that or hatred of that. Um, so it is, it's incredibly, incredibly nuanced and complicated um, and problematic. Definitely. Yeah. I was, I was really struck by just learning about the, the, the sheer criminalization of, of paparazzi. And yeah, that to your point about the, about the performance is how is celebrities like reaction and irritation and the way that they frame the paparazzi just like Im- imbued with this type of racialized, um, racist language, um, which gets me thinking about, you know, the point that you made uh, earlier about like the politics of visibility and invisibility that Mm -hmm. really shape, um, you know, the experience of doing labor in this industry, right? Whether you're a paparazzi Mm -hmm. or, you know, the other um, sector that you cover in the book are the reporters. Mm-hmm. which you um, make a point are majority, you know, white women workforce uh, as a celebrity journalist um, who are also in, in ways of subject to um, exploitation and precarity in, in, in different ways, uh, but ne- nevertheless, um, that's present in, in the work that they do. So I was curious if we could kind of talk about um, this, this duality a bit. Like mm-hmm. you, you talk about how, you know, white women are the majority of celebrity journalists. So why do you think that is? And also, um, could you talk a bit more about um, the privileges, but also the precarities that they experience Mm -hmm. um, in a industry that's, you know, seemingly so, so flashy and and glamorous, right? Sure. Yeah. So in the book, two main stories sort of open up the book, right? The first is about Chris Guerra, who's a paparazzo who was killed on the job, right? He was hit by two cars and killed while following the orders of a California Highway Patrol officer when he was trying to to photograph Justin Bieber. And the circumstance that led to his killing had very much to do with the kind of public derision of paparazzi and the way they've become racialized and criminalized that I talk about in the book. But in addition to Chris's killing, I also focus on the experience of Natasha Stoinoff, one of the white women reporters who I worked with at People magazine, who was sexually assaulted by Donald Trump while she was reporting on him for the magazine. And she told me about this assault in a recorded interview first in 2011. And while I had seen the way that women reporters were pushed into different situations, literally and figuratively, Natasha telling me her story was this sort of real clear confirmation about the level of exploitation that women face on the job. 
Now, obviously, their two positionalities, Chris and Natasha's, um, are extremely different, and both the paparazzi and the reporters are aware of this, right? Natasha is keenly aware of the fact that what happened to Chris never would have happened to her, and what happened to Natasha never would have happened to Chris. And so it's their unique position and their identities, specifically their race and gender, and the ways that those are exploited in this process of manufacturing celebrity that I really wanted to highlight and help us understand. And there are lots of layers that I work through in the book. In terms of white women's privilege, precarity, and exploitation on the job in this particular part of the industry, there, there are also several layers. First, you know, in terms of privilege, they have access, right? And that access comes from certainly their presumed class and educational extents, uh, but also presumptions that they are the objects of sexual desire for the predominantly white male celebrities, and also um, that they are the more relatable figures to the predominantly you know, straight white women celebrities or presumed at least straight, right? So there's a lot of presumed hyper heterosexuality. And the reality is that the privileges that give white women celebrity reporters the, that kind of access are also at the core of their precarity and exploitation, since they are essentially put on display in their work settings to be particular kinds of objects of desire, right? Or sort of like tools for exploitation. So there is this power racialized and classed power for sure, but ultimately the gender dynamics do put them in these really complicated positions at risk for exploitation, um, at risk for assault. Um, you know, we're in this ongoing era of interrogating different kinds of structural hierarchies and inequalities, but I don't think we're always looking at the way that these same foundational and structural inequalities that we see in places like government and law enforcement also impact Hollywood really deeply. And it's another one of the primary institutions of the U.S. and it's subject to the same kinds of power dynamics. So I think when we see a case like Harvey Weinstein, it comes to the forefront, but that's just one example. And in fact, Hollywood is just full of really serious and egregious abuses of power, abuses of labor, racism, gender discrimination, and, and forms of abuse. And I just think that's not the picture we get when we look at these beautiful glossy magazines like People and Us Weekly. And so I want to help give people the fuller picture. And the goal isn't that you then like hate the magazines or hate Hollywood. It's that you never look at these magazines or Hollywood the same again. Totally. And I, I also, I was, you know, so the access that you, that, that you have, you know, as someone that's like part of the community um, in every, and in, in not even a lot of ways in the way you're, you're doing the work um, you talk about in the book, this type of like racial hierarchy of value that exists in the types of images that the paparazzi even mm -hmm. go for or pursue in the first place, mm -hmm. uh, which I guess isn't necessarily surprising, but to kind of to see how, you know, your conversation and your embeddedness with the paparazzi really laid out why it is that, you know, images of white people are, are more mm -hmm. valuable, right, than images of, 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 of blacks, uh, black celebrities, um, really see how the, uh, the paparazzi are delivering this type of, yeah, racial politics of, of, of who's valuable, even within the star economy, right, where I guess one, including me, would maybe, like, mm -hmm. assume that, you know, you have, you know, Beyonce and, I don't know, Jennifer Garner, like, aren't they all, like, I guess Beyonce was the exception that they, the paparazzi talked about, right, but I was wondering if exactly. you kind of, talk a bit more about um, how those types of um, racialized power dynamics play into like the work of actually producing the images that paparazzi create. 
Sure. Yeah. And this is, it's such a rich area to think about. And, and it's not just the, the images um, that paparazzi produce and circulate that are subject to these racial hierarchies. I mean, because we just talked a little bit about the reporters, I want to mention you, I have a section in um, one of my chapters called Reporting While Black that actually looks the way that Black reporters, um, the, the Black women reporters who I worked with, talk about the specific ways that they um, are exploited in particular kinds of racialized ways uh, on the job. And so the, the, the way that race and gender are shaping the Hollywood entertainment industry that are shaping celebrity media, it's at every single level, right? Of course it is, but it's it's in ways that we don't always see. And sure, in terms of the paparazzi imagery, yeah, I, I go into depth in this in the book because that was one of the big things is understanding who is getting shot and when. And the paparazzi themselves is, you know, predominantly men of color. They're looking at this situation and going, we feel really terrible that we are contributing to this praise and amplification of a very clearly predominantly white celebrity media, right? That the people who are filling the pages of these magazines that we are are really supporting don't look like us and our families, um, don't look like our kids. Um, even, even the Latinx celebrities, it's like maybe Jennifer Lopez, but even within that, there's still, there's still hierarchies. Like you see things like, you know, I look into the, the power of celebrity couples in one of my chapters in my chapter on Brangelina. And you look at the fact that like Brangelina's babies were literally worth in dollars, millions more than, Mark Anthony and Jennifer Lopez's twins, literally millions of dollars paid for images of Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie's babies. Their, you know, first their, their child Shiloh, and then their twins were the most expensive celebrity pictures in history. And yet the pictures of Mark Anthony and Jennifer Lopez's kids were worth literally more than a million dollars less. We can take that into consideration and then also take into consideration that within Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie's family, they also have kids of color. Those kids of color did not, there was, there was no bidding war over images of those children. There were bidding wars over images of their white children. And that, I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't get more literally black and white than that, literally. And that's, you know, one of the things that uh, is brought up in the book is this, this concern that Gallo, one of my main uh, paparazzi collaborators, talked about how he got these really great pictures of Connor Cruz. Well, Connor Cruz is one of Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman's Black adopted children. Surrey Cruz would sell like crazy. Connor Cruz, there was no interest in pictures of him. So it's not even the celebrities themselves, it's by extension their children. If we want to talk about race and class and generational wealth, even when your parents are Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, even when your parents are Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, if you're not the white kid, you're not valued. This is literally the epitome of, you know, white racial capitalism. This is Hollywood. 
Right. Yeah, that's that is so powerful to like hear it broken down in that way. And your your image analysis is one of my one of my favorite parts of the book. Um, but we also want to talk on this on this note um, about the red carpet as well as. Mm-hmm. Um, Obviously, I mean, one of the most imaged events and places, but as, but also as like a location and ritual for celebrity worship, like even for me, um, I mean, around the time that you were first working at people, I was probably like ogling people in star in the grocery store (laughs) and looking at all the, all the, like who wore it better, um, red carpet side-by-side pictures when people, when, when, when women especially would wear the same dress, (laughs) but, Mm -hmm. um, how does this ritual of the red carpet contribute, do you think, to a particularly American cultural obsession with fame? Yeah, this is a great question. And it's so important to think about the red carpet in contrast to, but also in tandem with the paparazzi question, right? Like I talked a little bit about how with the paparazzi images, it's like the celebrities have to perform that they don't want to be photographed because that like sort of amplifies how important they are, but they have to be photographed because it indicates their their importance as celebrities. And so the red carpet is this ritual that is this place that specifically creates the spectacle of celebrity worship and obsession. It's a space where it's like more okay than the paparazzi doing it on the street, but it's as important in in terms of putting the celebrity in the place to be fawned after, to be photographed, to be videoed, to be fought after, right? Just the image of them being photographed, interviewed, that manufactures um, or reinforces their importance, right? Their significance and validity as a bona fide celebrity. And so the process of creating the red carpet, who is allowed in and who isn't, the barricades that paparazzi are kept outside, but red carpet reporters are, are allowed in, who walks on the red carpet and who is on the other side of it, the reporters like us. Um, it's all about status and keeping people in their place and elevating certain people and restricting others. So anyone who walks the red carpet is by definition important. It's a space that elevates personhood in such a symbolic way. And yes, it's it's the most American thing ever, right? It is a capitalist mechanism. The access is a demarcation of racial and class privilege. The access is rewarded by more privilege. In in my chapter on the red carpet ritual, the reporters who I interview talk about how at these events and even outside of these events, rich, predominantly white celebrities are given tons of things for free vacations, clothes, luxury goods, all kinds of goods and services that further their status, right? You're rewarded for being rich and the industry that, you know, the industry celebrities serve helps them maintain and grow that wealth. You're rewarded for being white. You know, Hollywood is the perfect place to see what the scholar and cultural critic Karitha Mitchell calls white mediocrity, right? In the book, I also talk about how the Hollywood industrial complex. And I think the red carpet is this perfect place to see on display how the Hollywood industrial complex works. And so just to mention a little bit of that, the, 
you know, in Eisenhower's 1961 farewell speech, he talked about this now very commonly critiqued military industrial complex, right, which is the conglomeration of military and defense industries that promotes war to sustain itself. And I, in the book, talk about the fact that the Hollywood industrial complex exists to sustain itself in a parallel fashion, right, with the celebrity system as its driving force. So celebrity personas are constantly created and promoted in order to stimulate consumption of Hollywood media and vice versa. And this really sort of underscores the systemic nature of the industry. It underscores the ways in which it is a machine. There is a manufacturing that needs to be acknowledged. And it also underscores this profound uh, historical relationship to the state and state institutions that Hollywood has and, and, and will always have, right? This relationship to the state is precisely why Hollywood has been the creator and promoter of racial and ethnic stereotypes that serve U.S. interests and foreign policy. So all of these things, when we talk about how is it uniquely American, it's uniquely American because it's all in the service of uh, racial capitalism, white supremacy, right? And, and Hollywood even likes to imagine itself as this liberal space, but you only have to look at its history the films, the most, you know, quintessential Hollywood films, Birth of a Nation, Tony the Greaser, The Yellow Menace, The Mask of Fu Manchu, these racist early Hollywood films, you know, show us that the illusion of Hollywood as a liberal, a liberal space is just an illusion. And, um, you know, Hollywood is reactionary. It always has been. And, and the reality uh, is that it's, I think looking at Hollywood through the Hollywood industrial complex is a really apt way to, to sort of express um, the different kinds of dynamics that I'm looking at in the book. Yeah, I think um, the, as you, you know, so succinctly put the relationship between the kind of media and reaction and importance placed on the red carpet and that complex I think also ties ties in interestingly to the point that you make about the nature of the news and mm-hmm. and like how important it is, especially now for us to pay attention to how entertainment news and you know actual news have become completely like enmeshed in this in this really disturbing way. Because I just think about how the red carpet was always like a news item because mm-hmm. it was a new piece of information that would drop and that there would be these like battles over exclusivity and like who would have Mm -hmm. access to certain images first and could Mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about how um how the the category of entertainment news also ties into your thinking in this book and about also perhaps about the shame that it seems that a lot of people who produce that kind of news feel around doing it sure yeah it's thank you for the question. I think it's, I think it's really important to really look at the fact that, you know, the way I conceptualize things that it is, sorry, the way that I conceptualize things is that the idea that there is a distinction now between celebrity news and hard news is really just the kind of notion that it should exist, right? There should be a separation between what we think of as sort of fluffy entertainment news and hard news like war and um, famine and homelessness and like real things, right? And and it, it, it should. But when we think about Hollywood as a Hollywood industrial complex and we realize that the same things are at stake 
that's it kind of shifts like how we can even begin to understand what is covered in news. All of these things are extensions of the same system. And when we have a reality star president for the years that we did, and when we have Supreme Court justice nominees being announced on primetime television, like as if this were The Apprentice, we see the ways that these sort of tactics have spread into every realm right, into the most powerful position in the country. And so, uh, you know, arguably in the world. And so I I think that it really requires us to, again, really deeply understand what is unique about American celebrity culture. And part of that is this intense marketing of fame that got us to the point of having Donald Trump as a president whose like claim to fame was yes, being a, a, a rich, um, mediocre white man who had a reality television show and no political experience, right? How can we then say, well, we need to separate political like hard news from Hollywood news. You can't, you literally by definition cannot. And so I don't know if that gets at the kind of full scope of what you were looking for. I'm happy to elaborate further, but it, it has been spelled out so clearly for us how and why these news realms can no longer be separated. Yeah, I think that really, that really does address it. And I think, I mean, the point in your conclusion that you made about, um, about all the, all the people at the car wash gathering around to watch Kim Kardashian and Chris Humphrey's wedding on E. <laughs> Was yeah. it, it actually made me want to watch that, which I've never seen. But um, it just I, I think that the, the point you make about the desire for a distraction in like this mm-hmm. time of crumbling geopolitical affairs and just the kind of like existential dread of climate change, among other things, that there is this like there is this solace to be found in, for lack of a better word, like bullshit. And that mm-hmm. is definitely also a part of the of that dynamic, but I don't, Marcel, did you want to add anything? Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking about like how that, you know, quote, like bullshit (laughs) has like (laughs) real stakes, has real stakes and also, you know, shapes the, the, the aspirations or the, you know, the perception of aspirations and life possibilities for so many people. I mean, I'll include, I'll put myself into that mix. Like the idea that fame for whatever reason and increasingly infamy, it seems in the case of Donald Trump, um, Mm -hmm it seems as like, it's like an end goal of itself. I was struck by some of those studies that you, you cited about Mm -hmm. um, how more and more uh, teenagers, young people are really looking to um, fame as being, you know, the end all be all. There's also this, like, I know this like famous, like, I think Lego does this like market research study with kids every year. And I think the top Mm -hmm. career now for kids is YouTuber. And um, so thinking about, you know, how, the nature of celebrity while so, and this cultural obsession with fame while, while, you know, potent uh, across time has really taken a different like um, tone and tenor, particularly mm-hmm. with the rise of like social media and yeah. how it seems like celebrity and fame and like access to that type of status has become, I guess, seemingly more distributed mm-hmm. and decentralized. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course there's like caveats and, um, naughty politics embedded in that um, ostensible decentralization, right? So I was curious if you could talk a bit more about like 
since, you know, since your book has come out and, and since, you know, you were working as a, as a reporter and things of that nature, how have you observed the celebrity, the celebrity media industry have to change? And I guess adding on to that, what do you think are, are some of the ongoing effects of, of this change in media Mm -hmm. towards how fame is experienced and marketed? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you touched on a lot of it right now, but I think, I mean, just to, to start with what you were just speaking to, you know, the, the question of access, right? We're, we are still in the middle of a global pandemic, right? And since the, the start of this pandemic and the way that it has shifted education it has made it so that educational and wealth disparities, I mean, they're, they're far greater now than they were when the pandemic started, right? So who can even think about being a YouTuber? Who has the equipment? Who can be online? I mean, when students were actually in school all the time, there was a greater access to a more diverse array of students. Even if there's inequalities within schools, there was more access at actual places of education than people had in their homes. You see a huge drop-off in terms of who can actually access the means to do classes online from their home at all hours, right? And those those are the people who can then continue to dream about this fame as a YouTuber or develop the skills um, or acquire the materials to even begin to apply those hopes and dreams. Uh, but to go back to you know the questions that you posed, I, in terms of social media and how that makes celebrity media change as an industry, it's changing, yes. Is it obsolete? I think absolutely not. I think that who is the focus of these uh, different kinds of media institutions and industries shifts, but I don't think that it becomes obsolete, right? There are ways where it can feel like there's a clinging to this old kind of, I mean, I say old, but I guess I mean Um, kind of traditional celebrity star, but we've been in a transition from, you know, I remember when I started at People Magazine earlier on, Kim Kardashian was just Paris Hilton's friend and Paris Hilton would bring her to events and try to get us to interview her. And within a few years, it was like, okay, nobody cares about Paris Hilton. Now it's all about Kim Kardashian. And she's the one telling us, you can only give me one question. I'll only answer one question for you. Right. And there was a time where people magazine wouldn't put any reality television stars on the walls of their building. Right. It was all quote unquote, real celebrities. And then what do you know? Um, The next year, Kim Kardashian's cover shoot is on, you know, in a giant framed uh, picture on the wall of the People Magazine offices in LA. So, So it's been shifting over time, right? There is definitely an understanding that there aren't Hollywood sort of superstars or super couples in the same way that we might've thought of like a Brangelina. Right. So it does seem like there's this decentralized experience of fame. And like, I I think this idea of a, a micro celebrity, but, you know, I think the side effects of this are that the community that a sort of mass popular kind of household name celebrity gives or gave, right? There, there used to be more folks who were all commonly known celebrities. Like we didn't know our neighbors, but everybody knew Brad Pitt or everyone still does know Brad Pitt. 
But if we think about YouTubers or TikTok stars, you know, it's a little bit more niche. So certain kids of similar demographics might know the same folks, but it's not going to be the way that, you know, kids of, of my generation all knew um, all the characters of say like a saved by the bell, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like just different, different kind of stars like that. So I think that the biggest collateral sort of damage of all of this, um, or effects of this is what you mentioned, which is that everyone thinks they can be famous and that it's this huge goal for young people. And right. As you mentioned, all of these studies over the last few decades have underscored that increasingly it is fame, not a talent, not a profession, simply fame as the growing goal of our young people. And that's, that's pretty, that's pretty difficult to grasp and understand that more people, I recall one of the studies, I don't remember the author, but one of the studies is that more people would rather be an assistant to a a famous person than a doctor, right? Like that's this fame and desire to be close to fame is so prevalent it's it's really hard to wrap your your head around. Well, yeah, and and also, I mean, per what you said before, I think that part of what fuels that desire is the complete disconnect of like what being famous actually involves, or like what that life actually would be because of the way that just because of the production of the fantasy of it. I mean, even being an assistant to a famous person being a goal to me is like so comical because I feel like those are some of the worst jobs that we possibly have, but it is really, it is like extremely mind, it is extremely mind boggling. I think it's, but when we think about the, what's like the worst job, right? It's like, this is where something like the paparazzi work comes into play because people would say like, oh, who would want to do that? And it's like, well, the paparazzi's approaches, um, we're not starring in the films. We don't have access to this industry any other way. And even if people hate us, we are able to provide a better living for ourselves than we could in a lot of other ways for people with our education, with our background, and in some cases, you know, with our legal status. So it's, you know, everyone is just trying to get their sort of foot in the door where they can. And that's where it's a little bit different with young people because they're not able to sort of work on the ground in the way that like a paparazzo would that they're, they're thinking about what they see more like people don't see the behind the scenes inner workings of this industry they see the fame i i just can't help but think you know like in this perpetual um abyss of craziness that <laughs> that we're currently mm-hmm. experiencing whether it's the the covid or the, um many of the other the kind of compounding crises that we're currently experiencing just kind of how fame like once again is being especially with like the rise of social was this not even the rise of social media at this point just like how social media is such a pillar of the everyday mm-hmm. fame is an influencing right as like I guess like the new way to talk to the new verbiage to talk about celebrity now is mm-hmm. really like framed in a lot of ways as this kind of like root to entrepreneurship like this sort of like classic you know neoliberal like subject like here's fame and influencing is like this way for like the individual to kind of create you know opportunities for themselves it's almost like this valve for survival that like fame as an as an end as, a, as an end into itself can be mm-hmm. you know something that we're all that we're all striving for as you know as 
economic and political conditions become more and more unequal. Um, Just struck how like celebrity again, like serves as this sort of like this like solve and like um, distraction, but also this, this place of, this place of hope for, for, for many people Um, because of, because of, I guess, maybe some of the, 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 what Isabel was bringing up too, like kind of the fantasy that's evoked, right? Like what people think that they're going to be getting when they become famous, but also just, you know, how our the political economy of our situation right now is like becoming famous um, or at least attempting to seems a lot more accessible and, and, and possible than, than a lot of other um, forms of employment or at least, you know, making inroads into doing that. So yeah, fame. I've also been kind of subject to that sort of um, ideology too. So your book has really kind of helped um, crystallize and contextualize you know the the labor that we don't really um, necessarily think about or 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 consider, but are really, of course, the backbone of how of how all this really pervasive media is is produced. So your your book is is really enlightening in in a lot of ways, and I know I'll continue to go back to it. Um, and so I want to thank you for your time speaking with yeah, us thank today. Thank you, thank you so much for the engaging questions and and you know just like for working through these these things with me. It's really exciting to be here. Awesome. Well, thank you, Vanessa, again for your time and creating this really powerful, necessary uh, piece of research. So yeah, with that, we'll let you go about the rest of your day. Thanks again for your time. <laughs>